Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring or inspired by the Beatles. This week we're bringing this first season of our podcast to a close with part two of our discussion of actual proper bona fide Beatles film, Help! So let's continue our discussion in part one in which we covered the Beatles part of the film and move on to the film part of the film. Um, So straight off the bat we should probably address the big issue about this film which is it's very much of its time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, yeah, we've covered a couple that are very much of their time, yes. haven't we? Um, I think there are uh, not just scenes in this, but there is an entire approach to this film that is, uh, of course, quite uh, problematic as the yes. <laughs> as the yeah. contemporary vernacular goes. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so to set the scene a bit, the Beatles are playing themselves, essentially. Um, they are in a situation where they are being pursued by an Eastern cult mm. um, who are uh, banging to sacrifice. Um, <laughs> and yes. the, the, actual, uh, the actual country this cult is from is not really made clear. They are described as Eastern. They're described as Oriental at times. And they are all, I think, played by white actors. Yes. Yeah. Um, who are doing accents, which you would sort of say are approximating Indian accents. And I think there's a bit of tan in the makeup as well. Yeah. 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 
uh, and I, I have to point it out now because I can't think of a better time to do so, but nowhere is it more apparent that this is cultural appropriation at its worst yeah. than in the fact that the leader of the cult is a rumpole of the baby. <laughs> I think that is in the, in the contrast between cultures i think that that's that those are the two opposite ends of the, the spectrum when it comes to um yes. what's being portrayed what's being depicted in this film versus the actor doing it <laughs> but yes I, I i feel like even though the film isn't explicit about it i think that the film is implying that the the religious cult in question are indian because of yep. there's a scene that takes place in an indian restaurant there's you know in that sequence i guess the sitar music Maybe that sequence has given me that idea of unfairly, but it just seems like that was, I, I guess, a key sequence in the film, isn't it? And I think when the you know the, the fact that the Beatles go to that restaurant in order to try to seek help with their problem mm. implies that there is sort of a background there that coexists between the cult and the the owners of that restaurant, which of course is where the gag comes in that actually they're from the West. <laughs> yes, but but also the Beatles in going there for help with this problem ha- have not identified any actual connection between this restaurant and the cult. They've gone there because it's the nearest Indian restaurant, yes. which, is, which is described as the nearest Oriental. I think. Yes. Um, so I mean, <laughs> yeah, they've they've lazily made an assumption that anyone Indian. Will know something about this. Uh, I mean, yes, you're you're right, and I really, really hesitate <clears throat> to debate any part of this. Yeah, because obviously you're right. However, I took that to mean that there is a story behind this ring and its significance, and that might be something that somebody of the same culture might be able to help with. Yeah, as opposed to. There is a death cult following us. Mm. I'm assuming your friends. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I don't know if it goes as far as to make that connection. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, like I say, I hesitate to to give the film the benefit of the doubt in that regard in this whole area. But I, 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 I could see a little bit of a through line that feels a little bit more innocent than than it could be taken for. Yeah, um, I think. Look, it, it would be stupid to excuse this completely i think it would also be a, a daft to be honest to dismiss the entire thing as a sort of racist endeavor although i i don't think i'm particularly in the best place to make that judgment and i am biased because it's the beatles and i tend, tend to excuse them things but what i will say is there is there are points to be made about the beatles and cultural appropriation so i mean the the one we're closest to at the moment is that this is the film in this indian restaurant scene that we're talking about where george in real life first saw a sitar picked it up played it as i think he says in anthology um the music just felt very familiar to him he he felt at home with it and that kicked off something that that stayed with him for the rest of his life profoundly changed his life and his death if certain accounts are to be believed if you think about the the way that eastern culture if you like is being played entirely for laughs here as a sort of funny curio but then arguably the beatles went on within a year or so to begin a process that introduced this music and culture to the west in a way mm. That, that that nobody else had before and i think it i think the it reminds me as well of there is all a debate 
a quite reasonable debate to be have about whether the Beatles were guilty of culturally appropriating black R&B artists because their, their early albums and their early performances are absolutely chock full of uh, of cover versions by artists like the the, the Isley Brothers and the and the Shirelles and so forth but but also plenty of those artists are on record as saying the Beatles kind of broke us in the UK white audiences weren't listening to us until that mm. you know so I, I don't know it's it's difficult to say the, the way we think about cultural appropriation is is profoundly different now to how it was then and I'm not saying well yes but they went on to popularize it so that makes it all fine well yeah it feels to me that you're making the argument that the Beatles have broadly broken even <laughs> <laughs> That's, they've, yeah they've cancelled okay. each other out it, it, yeah yeah, <laughs> without being cancelled themselves. Yes, exactly, yeah. Uh, yes. I, there is a line in this that I thought is, um, that I really, really like, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll pick up on these throughout um, this discussion, I think, but it has to be said that for all of the absurdity that occurs in the film, there are some genuinely, there are lots of genuinely brilliant one-liners in this mm. film that are actually, like, they, they are relevant to modern audiences now they are they're, they're delivered brilliantly um, yeah. and they're just just very well written and there is a line in this where Ringo explains the the situation to the Scotland Yard superintendent I think yes yeah. and but when he explains like you know they're after him for the ring and he explains what they want uh, from him he turns around and says they're from a different religion I think, you know, <laughs> yeah, good, yeah, like yeah. the fact that he's unsure himself, like, and yeah. it, it, it almost like just makes them rise above the 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 issue a little bit because, yeah. like, it's it's almost like they the religious aspect of the film actually isn't important yeah. to the film. Obviously, you know, there's there are still problems with the way it's portrayed or the way it's mm. associated with a particular culture. Yeah, but the idea that Ringo is is so consciously ignorant of it all, including mm. of his own religion, just yeah. kind of makes it a little bit, makes that particular gag a bit funnier, I think. Yeah, and I suppose there is a bit, it's perhaps not made all that strongly, but there is a bit of a thread running through it about the idea that organised religion is is a bit daft. Yeah. Which is something that they kind of uh, kept up for the rest of their career you know so mm. there's a scene where clang the leader of this uh, this death cult who has come to england specifically to pursue and kill one of the beatles uh, also has organized what seems to be afternoon tea with the archbishop of canterbury yes or someone like that and and he's sitting there you know, he's sitting there talking to him uh, about uh, well what we're trying to do is uh, we're trying to get the young people into fox hunting to sort of get to get them uh, used to the idea of sacrifice early on. You know, I'm not. You know, I don't expect you to see completely eye to eye with me on this matter, of course. And and this is all played out in in a very very kind of traditional British scene. So it's poking fun at sort of the the, the Britishness and benignness or benignity, if you like, <laughs> or whatever it is, um, of of, of organised religion in quite. In, in a funny and fairly harmless way, I'm going to say. 
Yes. Yeah, Harmless is doing a lot of heavy lifting, but <laughs> yeah, sure. But yeah, I, I don't disagree. I, I think that I, I think it's it doesn't have any kind of malicious intent at heart at uh, this film. I think it's uh, it is just a, a capsule of of a different sort of time period. I'm sure. Which is why we have the phrase of its time because <laughs> as a broad stroke um, caveat for all kinds of films like this. Yeah. Shall we go on to arguably what is an even more controversial subject, which is exactly how much does this film lean on Bond? <laughs> <laughs> well, th- well, this is something that seems to come up a lot, and you know, we, we mentioned in the in the episode about the the music of Help that that people do seem to make the connection between Help and, but you know, it's sort of described as a sort of Bond like parody or, or mm. a Bond like caper or something like that. There are obvious bits uh, in the score where it is referencing Bond. And the interesting thing, of course, is that the first Bond film came out on the same day as Love Me Do in 1962. So Bond itself is only three years old at this point. Yes. It is already culturally relevant enough for them for other films to be making references to it. Yes. Which is, which is interesting in itself. But, I mean, in terms of the story, I mean, the, yes, they go off to exotic locations, you know, and in ways that don't particularly need lots of narrative explanation, which it has that in common with with Bond films. Certainly, it's it's not a spy film, though. You know, no, it's not a spy film. But and I think that there's you know there's the score element of it that that directly references Bond um, during a chase scene. I think there are some elements of the film where you have what we now consider to be like Bond like gadgets in the film. You know, at one point. In Austria, Klang is wielding a an umbrella that was also a flamethrower. Yeah, you know, um, you have in that car chase where the the Bond theme first plays. Um, the the car that they jump in, they sort of press a button and the, the headlamp opens up and re- and lets loads of tacks on the floor, like you know, lots of pins. In you know, there, there's yeah. this idea of a, like a gadget gadget car. Uh, and other sort of gadget weaponry uh, in that as well. Yeah. And like you say, the locations. But both films, both Help and Bond at that time, I think uh, were being produced by United Artists. So yep. I think there was sort of a tie-in from a studio perspective, which you know I guess helps that question of was Bond culturally relevant enough for the Beatles to be doing this? Mm. Uh, I'm sure the answer is yes, but I think there's also a studio element to making that happen as well yeah yeah um helping each other really i suppose right? certainly yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. yeah. but yeah I, I don't see it's, it's interesting is it because I don't, I don't i certainly don't see that as a i don't i don't see it as a parody of a bond film which i think is kind of how it gets remembered um it's very much his own surreal caper yeah that yeah that, that just happens to sort of live in the same time frame as bond <laughs> Shall we, shall we go back a little bit to the beginning and talk about certain scenes? Because I think aside from all of the, the intro to the film, which we discussed very, very slightly uh, at the start of the last episode and obviously all the musical segments, I think the real big memorable moment in the film, and this is the one that's always stuck with me from when I first saw the film as a kid, is when they enter the house. I don't. Does it hold the same sort of like level of significance for you? Like for me, that is when I think of the film, I think of them entering the house and what a brilliant sight gag that was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and 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 just all all I remember is that bit, like them entering the house Ooh. and the fact that they're actually behind closed doors. It's obviously a big elaborate Beatles house and home. Yeah, yeah. What were we supposed to take from 
what follows next because it feels like we're being shown separate areas of a beetle's house and the implication you might think would be that each area is in some way relevant to each beetle's personality yeah um, i think that's probably true of john lennon mm-hmm. uh, he explores his you know his bookshelves and he, and he brilliantly does a um, sort of tap on lots of books before uh, guessing the one he wants and pulling out his own um, Spaniard in the works, isn't it? I think it was that he pulls out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and, and hugs and kisses his own book. Yeah. Um, you've also got McCartney, who sort of comes out of the floor playing this um, uh, piano uh, organ with comics on the front, <laughs> I, I guess, because he's young. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if he's a particularly big comic fan. I don't know, maybe he was. I'm not sure, but I mean, I, I think maybe they're there to, I mean, if there's any thought behind it, 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 it they may be there to stress that he is not is not taking this particularly seriously. You know, right. he's, not, yes, he's, not, see, he's yes. not sitting down and like writing Let It Be or something that like that. You know, he's, yeah. and actually, he's mucking about, you know. Yeah, I think that's, and that's yeah, probably quite a key discussion point around the Beatles at that time, wasn't it? As, as we mentioned before about um, them being uh, revered as songwriters, but not necessarily in the same vein as the traditionalists. So yeah, it makes yeah. sense. But then we have George and Ringo. So if you've got um, John as the, the literary member, Paul as the sort of the musician, then George is the gardener and Ringo likes sandwiches. Yeah. I think. George, uh, is there anything else we should be reading into those, or is it just um, silly sight gags? Well, George in in later life uh, was a very keen gardener. He used yeah. to put when he renewed his um, when he renewed his passport. I think for the final time, he put occupation gardener on it. Did he? Yeah, that's amazing. Um, that's a great because, fact. Because in um, uh, in Friar Park, it was an enormous garden, which I'm sure they had help with. But also, he would just garden and garden and garden. He really? Used to do it. Yeah, they talk about it a lot in the Scorsese documentary, um, Living in the Material World. And yeah, he was bang into his garden in general. Wow, you know. I had no idea. Um, but I mean, that is obviously a coincidence. <laughs> I don't think yes, of course. Yes, no. of so I'm, I'm intrigued by that yeah. fact because I hadn't yeah. heard that before. Yeah. But yes, it has no relevance at all to the point we're discussing right now. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, at no point, I'm assuming, did he actually cut the grass at Fry Park with chattering teeth? Uh, no, not to my knowledge. No. <laughs> um, and, uh, and of course, the connection between Ringo and sandwiches. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to pull something out. No, I haven't got a clue. No. <laughs> um, it is very funny though. Um, yeah. Uh, particularly George and his relationship with his gardener, where it, like <laughs> like it's a stern boss. Like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. He's like, just... like sort of yeah, just just um, admonishing him for the the length of the grass in this sort of like rug shaped area directly <laughs> in front of his bed. Yeah, which is obviously just absurd. Yeah, yeah, but it, but there is a. I mean, because you're right, it is a fantastic sight gag to walk through four separate. Uh, doors so it looks like they all just live next door to each other and they all go in and it's the same house and there has obviously been no point at all in them all getting out separate keys and going through separate doors you know it's just there for the sight gag yeah. but but also once you get inside there is a way in which they interact with each other um so th- there's color coding as well in terms of uh, so each bit of this room is painted in a different color john's is kind of uh, brown george's is kind of green and then sort of George is wearing sort of green pyjamas. I think they're all, and maybe Ringo is blue in his pyjamas. Like the whole thing is kind of colour coordinated. There's a brilliant joke um, the next morning when like John is woken up um, by uh, Ringo having fallen out of bed <laughs> because Arme is uh, trying to get the ring off him in his sleep. 
And to wake the others up, uh, John rings up George, who is at the other ends of not even that big a room, and <laughs> turns on his alarm clock and plays the alarm clock the alarm clock ringer down the phone to George, as opposed yeah, yeah. to just putting his alarm clock on, which George and they all would have heard. Yeah. Um, none of this is. I mean, I described that as a brilliant joke, and it and it, and it isn't. You know, because it, it it is just daft and endearingly so. Yes. But, and but also just really pleasingly so, I think. Um, and it kind of feeds into this idea of sort of general silliness um, that is in the film, which they're really well equipped to do. And they didn't get enough chance to do that in A Hard Day's Night, or at least maybe um, that was less the point of A Hard Day's Night. And also maybe they could have got away with that a bit less in A Hard Day's Night. They are... I'm not even going to say they're sort of flexing comic muscles here. That basically, this is written in a way that is quite silly and quite surreal, and just allows their natural funniness to come out. And I think that's that's really interesting because I think that I was going to say that I think that the the comic performances from the Beatles here are, 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 are it's, it's quite remarkable. I think, but you couldn't say that they work because they are delivering something that isn't already natural to them. Mm. I think it works because they have been given the flexibility to sort of do what they want in each scene. Yeah. I do think that that counts against the film overall in a lot of ways. I think that there are many, many scenes where the dialogue is pure nonsense. Mm -hmm. You can't quite work out what the the, the exchanges are supposed to be or mean. Mm. There's a lot of sort of rapid fire um, stuff between all of them that feels like you're a little bit outside the joke sometimes um, because mm. it's you know maybe maybe they've sort of got a bit of a shorthand for how they're, they're talking to each other but it's not it's not easy to follow I think I think it works best when they are sort of sticking to the script a little bit more or or um, commenting on the plot rather than when they've clearly been allowed to go off the leash a little bit in terms of you know, making what they can of a scene. Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest with you, I kind of, I feel like Help is actually pretty tightly scripted. Uh, sorry, what I mean by that is I feel like they are sticking to whatever the script is pretty tightly. I I can't think of many occasions when I feel like they've just been allowed to go off and improvise. I can't really mm. call it to mind. There are bits where there are, what you might describe as sort of beetle chatter. Mm. You know, if you get sort of live studio outtakes and there's just bits of chatter in the background uh, where there's a bit of that going on, where I think there's sort of seen later on in the Bahamas when the inspector has just turned up again and they're just sort of walking off and there's probably nothing in the script, but sort of John's going, he's a bit soft, that inspector, I, I've, isn't he? I've it's actually like, written that down in my notes. Right, right. Yeah. Not, not only that, but he says, um, he says a bit soft, isn't he, that inspector? And then he also um, goes on to say he never takes his hat off. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's just really funny. Yeah, so and it's it's very much like buried in the mix, like yeah. as they're walking off. Yeah, yeah, it's very yeah. funny. Yeah, so those those bits I feel like are maybe slightly improvised bits of bits mm. of chat, or just that they've recorded. You know, they they've said, look, you need to walk from here to here. Yeah, yeah. Just, just, just have a chat while you're doing it. You know that kind yeah. of thing. Maybe there's a bit of that. I bit. think maybe those are the bits that I mean. Okay, right. Um, but but there are. There are definitely sort of dialogue exchanges between them that feel like it's a mix of that and what's in the script, or it's not quite, it's not quite landing any sort of 
value to the story. Right. Yeah, I guess is what I mean. It, it does lend itself to an overall tone or quality to the film, I think, which is, which is you know which works. Yeah, but I do think that there were there there were some. I mean, there's a really brilliant scene. In fact, actually, to give an example, we know thanks to our Blu-ray copies that there is a deleted scene. Yeah, a deleted scene in which uh, Wendy Richards uh, from EastEnders fame talks about how she was cast for a particular scene in this film Mm -hmm. in which she and Frankie Howard, the late great comedian Frankie Howard, appeared in a a scene, I think it was at Buckingham Palace, and apparently the film got cut, uh, sorry, the scene got cut from the film, but apparently there were real issues with the fact that Frankie Howard is quite a perfectionist Mm -hmm. and he couldn't, or he didn't enjoy, or he couldn't get on with filming this scene with the Beatles because they weren't following their lines they weren't following their cues mm. they were sort of making stuff up as they went along and yeah and that is the impression i get from them throughout the film yeah it, I, I think it works when it's just them on screen but i think mm. that that there are times when you you sort of see the cracks start to show those parts of it create certain cracks in the overall film narrative because yeah. you're sort of getting lost in trying to understand those particular bits rather than actually following the overall story yeah yeah okay yeah i know what you mean i think because uh, so i watched that that sort of deleted scene thing as well and and yeah on the blu-ray you don't actually see this scene no you you see wendy richard talking about it which is really interesting and yes the idea and i think uh richard lester is also talking about as you say frankie howard like like their two styles just didn't work frankie howard and the beatles because i mean what what is obviously happening here is i mean richard lester it gave up or maybe didn't even try with the idea of uh, making them learn learn their lines. Mm-hmm. They were very much being given their lines just before the scene and just going on and doing it. Uh, and by the way, it's remarkable how good they are given that. You know, there yeah. must be, I haven't particularly studied the editing of it, but I'm sure there are lots and lots of cuts in the, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in those scenes, which is sort of te- a testament to how well put together the thing was. We should probably also point out, as early as possible, that the Beatles were incredibly stoned through a lot of this, right? <laughs> Which doesn't help. Yes. Does, I mean, it's yeah. you know, it's evident in watching the film yeah. how stoned they are for a lot of the scenes. Yeah. Like Paul McCartney, in particular, cannot hide those droopy eyelids. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, throughout a lot of this film, yeah, um, we know that as facts. Like it's it's documented truth, and I think that that also adds to this sort of script uh, question around you know how much of that were they made to stick to how much of it were they able to stick to if they yeah. were you know turning up having just enjoyed several joints and bongs which i think was <laughs> the case yeah uh you're laughing at me because bongs feel like an outdated word but <laughs> but i i know specifically that there was a point in the right at the end in the credits film where you actually see paul take a hit from a bong <laughs> Really? Yeah, in the you know in the in the end credits where you see each the Beatles in turn what? into the frame as though you're looking at them from inside the ruby, the from the right, right, right. Yeah, yeah that's how it goes. In, in at one point in that, Maka is uh, supposedly having taken a hit from a bong and blows smoke in the swing. <laughs> I've missed that completely. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't think it's explicit in the film, but that is apparently what he has done, and that's how he blows the smoke. You know, that's in, that part, <laughs> right? Okay. Um, okay. But anyway, I, you know, I, what we do know to be sure is that they were incredibly, incredibly stoned throughout the film. Yep. 
Uh, however, on a positive note, I will say that they there are lots of, like I said before, there are lots of moments in this which I think they deliver absolutely fantastically. Yeah. I think for me, in terms of dialogue, there was one scene that really, really stands out as sort of like a, 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 the best in the film, which is when they're at Buckingham Palace and they're... They, they, it's like the Beatles were rooting for Ringo and they were all on side of him and then they suddenly turn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, they realise their own lives are in danger now. So they're starting to question exactly how much Ringo might need his finger. Yeah, yeah, hand. yeah. And what I really love about this whole scene is there's so much going on there in terms of the different exchanges of dialogue between yeah. them all. Yeah. Not least because they, you know, they've very cleverly written this scene around Ringo and George playing cards. Yeah. Which means you have this whole idea of show me your hand, mm. and they're talking about the de- the hand at, of cards and his hand and yeah, stuff, yeah. and you have this interplay where it's actually it's it becomes quite difficult to keep up with what they're all talking about because the yeah. the lines can be quite you know yeah. taken in lots of different ways. Yeah, but very 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 funnily, very cleverly written, I think, and very funnily delivered from all of them uh, in what still feels like a bit of a haphazard way. Yeah, but, but yeah. it does feel quite tight. It feels very of... tight, and and I'm sure that must have been that. There's a lot of editing has gone into yeah, that. I'm yeah, sure. sure because yeah, that that is they are they are sort of machine gunning that yeah. dialogue at each other and and going back and forth in a way that looks really really accomplished and professional. And yeah, I would be very surprised if the shooting of that scene was anything oh, yeah, like definitely. professional. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, one take. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but it's really interesting I mean, and to give an idea of like why I think some of these things are quite difficult some of these scenes are quite difficult to um, uh, to keep up with in the film is that that whole section starts with Paul bouncing a baseball um, off the side of the wall mm. and he says look see I can do look what I can do with one hand and he has mm. it with one hand and that's before you realise that they are going to then argue with Ringo that he might only need one hand. Yeah. You know, like, but that that feels quite out of place until you realise that that's what they're going to then go on to do. Yeah. Um, it's almost like you're sort of, it's almost like Beatles are, are catching up with themselves in some of these scenes yeah. as much as we are as an audience. Yeah, yeah. I think that there is, like I say, I mean, there's lots and lots in this that, that, that isn't actual jokes, but it, they are made funny by their delivery. So when I was a kid, I think I first I first got this when I was maybe ten on VHS or something like that. And the scene at the jewelers, it is. I mean, all that is the actor who is playing the jeweler is is he is so brilliantly <laughs> yeah. of a different of a different class and way of life that they are disrupting, and so he's being very. Very, very posh. Even the Royal House of Hanover had the wheels. Yeah. And <laughs> yes, I love that. But, but that's because like yeah. Lennon has just said, not the wheel. And and yeah. also, specifically, there's nothing funny about this line at all other than the delivery. But um, Lennon saying, uh, Jeweler, you're getting nowhere, are you, Jeweler? And then after the wheel breaks, he goes, Jeweler, you failed. Like that. And <laughs> I, I cannot tell you how funny I found that and still find it now. <laughs> I, I, yeah. it, it just delights me and, and uh, to be perfectly honest that line occurs to me every time I have passed a jeweller since I was 10 <laughs> years old like it's just lovely and perfect and then it's kind of echoed in the scientist you get a nowhere are you scientist yes, you know yeah, yeah. and so they're, they're sort of going to all these I suppose they're authority figures 
and and he, he, the fact he does that it in the Scotland Yard inspector as well. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah he's and the, really and like people. It's like, um, what about the Great Train Robbery? Huh? <laughs> How's that going? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and also, yeah, you know, there, there are they are being pursued by a death cult at this point. Yes. Yeah, as Re- as Ringo says, there's a certain amount of hurry up involved here, jeweler, <laughs> due to the fact that my life's in danger. Like, and it, well, they don't seem too bothered about it. But it's just, I, I think that the silliness of the situation allows them like they, if they if they had to act scared at all at any point yes. like we are about to be murdered we are genuinely terrified of this it just wouldn't work at all no and, and i think that i think you you're right i think there is there's an there's a pro and a con there i think which mm. is that sometimes i think the it feels like in the film the beatles are ignorant of their situation like and and that is the point so as you know early on in the film I think the the attempts that are made to to steal the ring from Ringo or to chop up his hand or to kidnap him are played in a way that they are foiled without the Beatles even knowing that that was what was happening right. in the first place, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at some point in the film, that changes and they are aware they just seem a bit above it all. Or like you know, <laughs> yeah. th- this idea of, of this sort of death cult following them yeah. and you know risking their lives... Just seems a bit beneath them, you know, <laughs> um, which is hilarious yeah. in in of itself. But that's a great way to play it, especially like you say, particularly um, because they're not actors; they can't, they shouldn't be acting. Yeah, um, you know, like as as in there as if they are really invested in the yeah. story. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do think that there is a little bit of grey area or crossover where you're not entirely sure which of those two things is happening at any given time. Yeah, you don't know whether the Beatles are are aware that this is happening and they don't don't care for it yeah. or if they if they are ignorant because it's this it's not quite obvious watching the film uh where they stand on the matter. Yeah. I do think though that in its favour, what this does mean is that the Beatles come across in their own film as being almost like meta aware in their own movie. Yeah. You know, like it like the entire film and its premise and everything alluding to the film in, in the same way that the Monty Python does, that you're calling into uh, into question, into frame the the film itself. It's almost like the Beatles are telling you that they know that they are currently starring in their own film, and mm. then they're they're enjoying it for laughs as much as you are as, as an audience. Yeah, yeah. Without because there's a there's a bit of fourth wall breaking. Arme mm. uh, like yes does it. I'm not what I seem. Ringo does it with all the rungs have been neatly sawed in half. Um, yes, and. Yes. I think think that's about it but otherwise they're not they're not sort of winking to camera uh, Arme does literally wink to camera but, they, but, other, <laughs> yeah, but, the Beat- that, yeah. but the Beatles aren't sort of winking to camera all the time and actually I think the bits that give it uh, I'm, I'm not going to say no gravitas is absolutely the wrong word <laughs> <laughs> Let's, yeah that, that's a ridiculous thing to say I, th- I, I think that the bits that give it a bit of sort of capital are that there are times when they are required to do close-up facial expression acting, which turns out to be fantastic. So yeah. there's a bit where Paul comes out of the house, Arme comes up and like tries to. I think it's the first time the cult have kind of made contact with them, and Arme, a good-looking woman, is like trying to get him in to sell him kind some kind of line or something like that. And then she sort of giggles uh, girlishly because she fancies him. And it cuts to Paul. 
And he just has this expression on his face where he's just sort of a bit embarrassed and a bit like, oh, God, this happens all the time, you know. And and so it's kind of making reference to the idea of him being the cute one, if you like. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and it, and it, it, other bits where during You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, they're both, uh, Paul and George uh, are sort of both trying to get Arme's attention and there are close-ups on them paul's doing a bit of winking george you can kind of see him looking between the two of them and he's a bit annoyed that she fancies paul more than he more than she fancies him and this is the thing is like they, they are required to do what you might term proper acting at, yes. at times yeah, yeah, yeah. and they yeah. do and like i say it isn't like having to look genuinely terrified or anything like that i mean i was always impressed by when just in, in in a hard day's night when they would just have to do like a bit of business so when they're on the train at the start and Paul's introducing his granddad and he just sort of gets up and starts combing his hair in the mirror which presumably he's been told to do by the director but at the same time like they're just good at uh, just adapting to things like yeah, that you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Um, because broadly they can sort of turn their hands to anything it seems yeah, sure. I, I thought it was quite interesting so John went on to say about this film he didn't enjoy the experience very much or they didn't enjoy the experience very much mm. and that they I think he said that they felt like they were extras in their own movie right um, and I kind of find it hard to um, to understand what he means by that because I feel like this is very much they are, they are at the forefront and they are allowed to do what they want to do yeah. at all times and um, when you're you know when you say things like Paul McCartney you know went on to comb his hair in, in Hard Day's Night this film is littered with stuff like that. Mm. Um, and also stuff that I don't think they have been told to do. Yeah. You know, like John Lennon in particular feels like he's always the one that is really above the film production yeah. thing. You know, he always feels like he's doing, there's in that, in that card scene in Buckingham Palace, there's a bit where he gets the knife and like, he like exaggeratingly tiptoes over to the table. Like, you know, he's been like sneaky manipulative and it lasts <laughs> half a second, yeah, but yeah. like he's, it's a very sort of cartoonish thing that he's doing that he's doing just for the camera at that time that, you know, that he probably didn't do that in any other take. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think there are scenes as well where Lennon, I'm pretty sure is consciously trying to make the sort of proper actors corpse. Uh, there's one where the I think we first, oh, yes. first told about like the inspector's famous plan. Yes, and it, in the car they're saying he's, he's got a plan, a famous plan. He's uh, cutting him up, is he? He's yeah. Him, yeah, 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 yeah. And there's a bit in it that I guess they must have just had to keep in because they just didn't have a better take where he is just fully talking over him. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's just like a it, it's a little thing, but it is just not. It it doesn't quite fit in like a finished film. Yes, but I I'm sure they must have done it ten times and thought we got to move That's on. That's the best version. That's yeah, the yeah, best yeah. version yeah. we've got. No, yeah. I completely yeah. yeah I agree. And that and yeah. I think that that goes to show how much power the Beatles have on their own set at that time, right? Yeah. Like they're allowed to be given free reign to do stuff and 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 to to mess with the production itself and yeah. And yeah. I guess maybe you know maybe what what, what Richard Lester recognised was that allowing them to do that was the film. Yeah. You know, that that's where he saw it happening. John also went on to say, after he made those comments, years later, um, he went back to the, um, the, the idea of help, and he, he said something like, that he just didn't realise what Richard Lester was trying to achieve, and they, they weren't aware of, of what it was, but now he can see that it was kind of like a precursor to the Batman Power series, which is what he called it. Yeah. Which I absolutely, when I watch it, I absolutely see that through line. Like yeah, that, that is my, 
you know, having not been, I guess, exposed to as many films or shows of, of a similar genre before, mine immediately goes to Monty Python, yeah. Batman, yeah. and the other Beatles films. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of it. But definitely Batman, you can see that that's um, a, a clear in, inspiration for that show in terms of how much it leans into the absurdity. Yeah, because Batman started next year, didn't it? 66, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you, you can completely see that. Yeah, it makes total sense. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This shouldn't be important for a film like this. But plot. Yes. <laughs> is a little bit of an issue for me in the film. Yeah. In that it there isn't much of it. There's elements of this story that I feel like should exist but don't or are brushed over when they should be important. Yeah. Tell me if I'm being pedantic, but how did Ringo get the ring? Uh, he got it from, he explains to Clang, who's posing as a waiter in the in the restaurant, I got it from this eastern bird lady, lady. Um, in a... In a fan letter, I get all sorts. Yes. There you go. How? Uh, so, so the girl at the start, who yes. is Ame's sister, who they can't sacrifice because she's not wearing the ring. Yes. She uh, sent it to Ringo. Right. How do you know that? It is implied. <laughs> <laughs> it's implied from those. Well, from what you've just said. No, but I, it, 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 you know what. I'm not sure how I know that. I, I, I mean, I think implied is maybe it's even said at some point. Maybe Arme explains it. Arme certainly explains that that's her sister. Right. Uh, by the way, one of the best jokes in the whole thing is the little interlude where her sister is getting her 
the red paint scrubbed off her by her mother. Yes. Saying, you've been up that temple again, ain't you? Yes. You're as bad as your sister. Like It's so it's funny. Very, very funny it, yeah. Because it because it makes no sense that her mother <laughs> speaks with that accent. It's just absolutely perfect. I love it. <laughs> That's very true. But yeah. But, it, 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 so it, the, the broader point is, yeah. I don't think it's clear, right? So yeah. I, I get, you know, I get Ringo explains how he got the ring in that way but yeah. that's quite an important like part of the film i, I mm. feel like you know you're, you're what you're saying is the, the thing that sets the film in motion is entirely missing from the film itself I, you, you know what i mean i yeah i don't know whether it's stated like i have seen this like several times over and i i must have just derived that impression it, it it may not be that it's sort of consciously set. It may be that I, that I've just put those pieces of the jigsaw together. Yeah, but and I think that's fair. But I do think it's enough. I mean, it's not. I, I've certainly never sat down and watched this and thought, well, I know. I know you're not saying you need it all sort of spoon fed to you, but like yeah. I, I, but I've never sat down and thought, well, this is a an issue with it. This is uh, leaves a gap that needs filling in some way. I, I guess you know. Maybe maybe this comes from when I was watching it as a kid and I didn't feel like I quite followed the story, but I didn't need to because I was enjoying the film yeah. in, in in of itself. But right. but I I recognise now that I didn't understand certain parts of the story that certain parts of the story that are just common in most other films. You yeah. Know, like, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Like um like an explanation. I, w- I wonder if there is a, there's a comparison to be found as we were discussing with James Bond earlier on in that. Like my experience of watching James Bond films, certainly when I was a kid, and quite a lot now, to be honest, is I don't really know the whole thing of what's going on with who who the villains are, who they work for. You know, mm. when I was a kid, I had no idea what the Cold War was about, and all yeah. these films are set in the Cold War in some way. What I did know that here was a guy, and he drove cars, and he got off with girls, and he shot people. And, and and that is and that there is a bad thing. And those that's are the happen. four Beatles, <laughs> <laughs> the four personality types that make up the Fab Four. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> the the but it, but you see what I mean is like that those plots can be appreciated just in 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 yeah. their very broadest strokes, and I don't. And I always found James Bond films perfectly satisfying on that basis. I, I completely agree with you. Yeah. I, I think the Bond and. Uh, comparison is, is exactly what i mean i think you know I, I had the same thing you know i've there are some bond films that i've seen uh dozens of times but right now i wouldn't be able to tell you why the main bad guy was doing the main bad thing that he was doing yeah just, you know, what was his end game like yeah, because it was, it's, it's just there so that we can watch bond chase cars and get off with girls and shoot people and whatever else you said right yeah, yeah um yeah. And so, so you're right. You're fine. You know, I think that makes sense. You know, in in the applying the same logic to this film, you don't need to know why the sacrifice is so important, or mm. you know, like um, why why haven't they found an easier way to make the sacrifice happen? Right, um, right, right. Or you know, where did the ring come from? Why is it? What is the background to this ring? Why is it the only sacrificial yeah. ring that they have that has to be handed down? <laughs> yeah. What is the story there? Yeah, like all those things that you probably would expect in a, a modern version of this kind of story you expect to be given a certain amount of background or context and stuff and actually mm. i re i do realize that you don't need it in a film like this but i am left wondering should it be there well, because it normally is for for modern films yeah um so 
you remember our episode on the Magic Christian where we were talking about how and when was Magic Christian? Four years later, um, which is a That's much nuts. Four <laughs> years later, right? Like Ringo has lived like eight lifetimes between <laughs> Help and Magic Christian. Yeah, yeah, that is nuts. Um, but you, th- you think about how we were talking about how right at the start of that film, it, it its main premise, its setup is obscured by the score. You can't actually hear yes. what they're saying when Peter Sellers kind of explains this is what is going to happen in this film. Yes. Now, now that is frustrating. That leaves a gap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you really feel the absence of that. And it isn't, it, and it's not the kind of thing where you can explain it away or excuse it by saying, hey, yeah, but this is just a madcap, wacky 60s film. Just get with it, man. <laughs> you know, whereas it, it, if that was the case for help, if it had sort of narrative set up, which just left you thinking, well, no, hang on, you've left this out. I can't, I, I don't, I have to figure this out for myself. You don't really. Like, you, you are aware that there is a ring. You're aware that there's an Eastern death cult. Uh, <laughs> and, and and that, I mean, it. listen, it's absolutely fair to say that uh, this cult, the, it, the setup it gives you to be sacrificed, you need to be painted red and you need to be wearing the ring. And so a, a lot of the ways in which the cult try um, and sacrifice Ringo is by covering him with paint and yes. then killing him. Then after a while, they just start trying to blow him up. Yeah, yeah You know, yeah, yeah, all yeah, the rest yeah, of the yeah. Beatles. Or like, they, they, they've dispensed with the idea of the red paint or anything like that. They're just trying to kill him. Uh, well, uh, is that true? When? Was an example. So, Salisbury Plain, they're just trying to blow him up. No, um, because if you remember rightly, there's the guy that's throwing those sort of red, Frisbee things oh, in the air. Yeah, with the blowpipe. Yeah. Of course, of course. So the idea is to very, very loosely cover it, to get one speck of paint on him from yeah. sort of a nearby breeze of, um, yeah. of, of paint, then that's oh, apparently course. good enough. Yeah, it makes sense. But, you yeah, know, yeah. they're, they're, they're still sticking true to that, that theme. In terms of plot coherence, yeah. uh, we do very handily have a narrative device that helps us along the way, uh, which is... Lots of on-screen text. Yes. It doesn't do that job, though. If anything, it confuses things more, I yeah. think, uh, for me. And particularly just the, the style that they're written, and it feels very inconsistent throughout the film. Um, yeah. I realise they are in of themselves their own gag, but it just <laughs> yeah. seems they, they, they're used quite strangely. Sometimes they, they seem like they're used you know, quite earnestly, and sometimes <laughs> they're, they're, they are there just specifically to be funny. I suppose they're sort of, perhaps they're sort of parodic in some way, and I say that, I say that in the sense that they feel parodic without my actually knowing what they're parodying. Yes, um, I find that the captions are very funny in general. So things like everyone laughs at Ringo's sudden apprehension. Yes, and then the Beatles go, ho 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 ho, and and the best one by far is when a tiger appears. And a caption comes up saying "a tiger," <laughs> which is fantastic, and like, and you know, sort of very Python esque before Python, I suppose. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it's it, it, that is not something that worries me. No, um, end of part one, yeah. end of part two, yeah. intermission, yeah, end of part three later that evening. Yeah, <laughs> I, I get all of that as great, but yeah, like, yeah. but but when it comes up, you know, I've got some examples here, so. Uh, seeking enlightenment as to the rings, the lads seek the nearest Oriental. Yeah. Then they have next the nearest ring specialist. Finally, undismayed, the nearest scientist, uh, which which helps you understand, I guess you know why they go into the next sequence, the next sequence. 
I do think they're written in a strangely sort of, you know, po-faced kind of way. Yeah, but deliberately so, right? Deliberately I mean, so, of yeah, course, yeah. 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 I, I mean, counting down the, the number of attempts on Ringo, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, there followed one more fiendish attempt in poor Ringo's life. I just found it a bit um, unusual. Like, I, I mean, I, like I, I guess it reminded me of when Monty Python did it with Holy Grail. Yep. Because that sort of calling out of the film and the script and the the idea that they're actually all partaking in a film production of some kind is mm. used very sparingly. Yeah. Um, this idea of sort of text on screen, I don't know, it just seems sort of it's, it's used inconsistently enough for me to call it into question. Yeah, um, it's not something I've ever noticed. I mean, I've noticed the captions. I've never thought of them being inconsistent. I should point out, by the way, that... I, that, uh, I have basically no criticisms of this film at all. I absolutely love it. Yes. Um, and I know you're not doing it for the sake of it. But, uh, I mean, trust me when I say that absolutely any criticism you bring up of it, I'm, I'm going to shoot down because I absolutely love it. It's my favourite Beatles film. Is it? I, I have. It is so often thought of as a, as a poor cousin to A Hard Day's Night. Everyone says, oh, it's really inco- incoherent. It doesn't make any sense. That stuff is true, other than it being a poor cousin to a hard day's night. I cannot fathom why anyone thinks that. I think it's absolutely joyful, and I love it. Mm. Like it, it's, but I mean, this is uh, it was the first Beatles film I ever saw, and it, it and I watched it so much as a kid. You know, it's just one of those VHSs that I just watched over and over again. So yeah, what else you got? <laughs> Should we circle back to the, um, the the first point in this conversation about the, uh, the cultural appropriation? Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me again that this is your favourite Beatles film. <laughs> okay, actual plot point for you. So yep. again, you know, I, I don't, I'm not trying to pick these things up because I want I want to criticise no, the films, no. but. I feel like it's a given that this is a, a joyful film that uh, that we all know and love. Yep. Existing fans of this film are existing fans because it means something to them in some uh, life. They, they grew up the film or they you know remember it from an earlier part of their lives. Um, and it means more to them for that uh, in that way. So when I bring up things to criticise about the film, it's really just sort of to, I guess... Because we're doing a podcast. Because we're doing a podcast, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, yeah, and it would be a bit dull if we, if we just sat here <laughs> and said, that's great, isn't it? Should we just reenact it? On, <laughs> um, but I will say, the the famous plan that they do come up with at the end of the film yep. doesn't make a huge amount of logical sense to the film. I, I think, you know, and it's also one of those films where because it feels like such little thought has gone into the actual plot of it, yeah. wrapping up that plot doesn't necessarily feel like it covers all the bases or, or wraps <laughs> everything up neatly and yeah, that's fair. you know so there's 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 a few things there. So there is when they're in the Bahamas, when the 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 Beatles escape from the cult on bicycles and then John decides, uh, we should just go back. Let's go back and fight them and deck them, I think is what he says, right? <laughs> so they sort of have a little mini conversation about just going back and doing that. And yeah. and, and that's and that's a good thing. That, that wraps the film up because that is, you know what, they've spent the entire film on the run and now they decide they're not going to run anymore. They're going to sort of face them and, and you know, face it out. Yeah. That whole thing happens in like 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And very suddenly. There's yeah. no... Oh, yeah, there's yeah, no, yeah. There's no catalyst for John suddenly deciding that they're literally like cycling all the way down a very long road before he's just like actually you know what let's go back <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah 
So, so that sort of comes out of the blue a little bit. But um, I, but I think I mean so what I will say, look, you're of course absolutely right about that. It makes no you. no narrative sense whatsoever. However, it it and I, to be honest with you, I don't think it had ever occurred to me that that's the case until you said that just then. I, I'm here to slowly ruin your favorite Beatles <laughs> film one scene at a time. But uh, but I think the reason that has never occurred to me is the charm with which it's done. Yeah. That they, it's all they're cycling round and round in circles, saying, "Let's go back yes. and get them. Yeah, yeah, let's smash them." And John says, uh, or, "You know, someone says something, and John says, uh, not if I get the boot in first. Yes. Like that. Yes. There's so much lovely stuff in that, and bits of it must have been improvised, I'm sure. Yeah, and it, it just, it's just, just the joyousness of that. <laughs> it just made me forget. Maybe I did notice before that it didn't make any narrative sense, but I just didn't care. You know, it's. Uh, oh yeah, I mean, this is an argument that that anything inconsistent is actually still largely consistent with the film because there's so much inconsistency. That's all, you know, it's all, it, it still feels like, it feels like the film is going to end in any way. It feels like it's going to end like this in a way that yeah. doesn't quite make sense. And because that's got yeah. perfectly in keeping with the rest of the tone of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And we have to talk about the famous plan. Yeah. So the famous plan that, uh, where they are able to round up the, the cult members in order to prevent any further risk to Ringo's life, yep, they each dress up as Ringo, yep, put themselves in danger, yep, yep, and then um, just trust that they'll be able to capture those cult members that then attack each of them. Yep, um, masterstroke. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a plan that's not without its flaws. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But there's a lot of fun to be had, you know, in seeing the Beatles dress up with a bingo mask on. And, yeah, know. yeah. Yeah, no, look, of course, it's an awful plan. But I would counter that by saying Andy Dufresne's plan at the end of the Shawshank Redemption. Rubbish plan. Like, he's he, he's gone he, he, he's, he's gone and escaped and in order to get Red to follow him. He's gone, oh, I've put this thing, there's a, there's a rock uh, in a field and it's by a tree and it's like south of this place and the rock has no business being there. And it, it, rather than just tell him this is exactly where this where this thing is, gives him like a really bad set of clues that he has to decipher himself. He's very lucky that Red actually manages to to follow it. So in a way, <laughs> in conclusion, help is better than the Shawshank Redemption, <laughs> or at least no worse I mean, in that regard. It's a, it's a it's a very tenuous argument you make. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I wasn't quite expecting the, the Shawshank defence uh, <laughs> uh, in relation to I don't, I help. Don't, I don't pull out the Shawshank defence often, but uh, wow. I mean, it's um, stymied you, I can tell. Wow, I'm glad you saved it until our last episode. <laughs> so maybe that's it. Maybe the Shawshank defence wins out. You know, if, if you can argue that help uh, as a film is largely incoherent, certainly inconsistent but fun all the way, then maybe it's okay to let all of the other flaws go when you have what is still, I think, uh, what is currently the best-rated film on IMDb, The Shawshank Redemption, having what you argue to be an even greater flaw in its premise. Yep. Um, Stand by it too. So, I mean, it feels like a perfect time to end this episode and indeed our entire first season on a bombshell that completely rewrites what we know of cinema 
in its entirety. Yep, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, listen, we've come to the end of the first season. So um, if you have listened to all of our episodes, or even one of our episodes, or even some of this episode, we thank you very much for giving us your time. We will be back for a second season. We'll be coming back at some point later this year, date to be announced. If you want to find out that date, and you want to find out all of the the, the next slew of films that we'll be covering in our next season, um, then follow us on social media. We are at Beatles Films Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Go and find us there and follow us there so you can keep up to date with uh, our eventual return. And also, if you've enjoyed any of these episodes, please would you think about kindly giving us a rating or a review. We would very much appreciate that. And otherwise, for this season, that's it from us. So we will see you again very soon later this year. And thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.